Our sermon today is taken from John 4, verse 1 to 26. This is the word of God. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisee had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, weary as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on the on this mountain, nor in Jerusalem, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is taking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Grace. Let's put this here. All right, guys, so we're going to, well, first of all, let me just say, I think I bit off a bit more than what I can chew. That is a long, a long passage and a long text. Um, but I think that's okay. Uh, I think, I think we, can, we can make it here. So last week we took a break from the longer, bigger series of John that we've been doing, and we 
looked at the book Obadiah, the Minor Prophets. Now we're going to go back to John again, and this is our next passage. So John, as, as we've talked about, is a book that records the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Okay, It's pretty much the story of Jesus' life on earth. And actually, usually before we start, I, used, I like to give the context of, of what the passage is, is about and all that. But we can get right into it because our passage itself actually helps us, reminds us of the context of where in the story are we actually in. Okay, so read verses 1 to 3. Uh, well, I'll read it and just follow along with me. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. If you remember what happened before, Jesus just got done preaching the gospel and baptizing people, right, in Jerusalem. And then he was confronted by a few spiritual Jewish leaders who are called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were growing in their jealousy of Jesus because Jesus was also growing in his stature as a spiritual leader to the point where, verse 2 says, even when his disciples were the ones doing the baptism, their baptism was associated to Jesus. That's when you know movement is happening. Right, when other people are doing the job, but it's associated indirectly to you, when you're impacting other people indirectly. So it's, it's growing. He's becoming more and more of a spiritual leader. And the Pharisees are getting a bit intimidated and jealous. So Jesus left, and he is going back to Galilee, verse uh, uh, 1 says, or verse, verse uh, 3 says. But on his way to Galilee, he stops by a place called Samaria, specifically near a Samaritan town called Sychar. I think that's how you pronounce it. By a water well, more specifically, that has much historic significance, called Jacob's Well. We can get into it a lot, but for our purposes, let's just minimize to what we we need to know. Um, What's important to point out is that this piece of land where Jacob's Well is at has been a place where Israel in the Old Testament, God's people in the Old Testament, had... Have, have had much conflict over. They fought about it a lot. At times it would belong to Israelites, at times it would belong to somebody else, and other nations, and they would just be fighting. And the big question around this land is, who owns it? Who, whose land is this? And in our text, it's right now in Samaritan territory, which is where Jesus passes through. Now a bit about that too. The history between the Jews and the Samaritans weren't that good. By this point in, 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 in time in history, there's already would have been a couple hundred years of war between the Jews and the Samaritans. So the original readers that were reading this were probably like, oh my goodness, Jesus is in enemy territory. This is a tense time for them. This is scary. Okay, And they immediately would feel the tension of where Jesus is at in a well, tired, uh, exhausted, needing water. And it is here that Jesus gets into a conversation with a Samaritan woman. A conversation that is unbelievably rich and I believe is vital for the church today to really understand what Jesus is trying to say here. All right? So today, because it's such a long passage, I'm going to point out five things from the text. I usually do three, but I'm going to do five today. I'm going to make them shorter, so it's still going to be about 40 minutes, okay? Keyword there is about. All right. Point number one, the water that he offers. Point number two, the shame that he uses, or the wound that he uses, sorry. Point number three, the true God that he reveals. 
Point number four, the land that he gives. And point number five, the hour that he embraced. Let me just repeat them again for you who want to take notes. One, the water that he offers, the wound that he uses, the true God that he reveals, the land that he gives, and the hour that he embraced. All right, so pray with me, and we'll jump right into it. Father, it's a long text. There's a lot in here. Um, And Lord, I beg you that you be merciful and gracious to our minds and to our hearts, that as we study it, uh, we may know and see the significance of the truths here, that it may dictate and shape our lives as we live in this world you own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Point number one, the water that he provides. So the scene begins here with Jesus being exhausted, sitting beside Jacob's well. He's thirsty. And now comes a Samaritan woman. This Samaritan woman wants to draw water out from the well. And Jesus asks this woman for a drink. And the Samaritan woman responds in shock. Okay, it's kind of hesitant the way she responded. Why was that? A few reasons. One, Jesus is a Jewish man, and the woman was a Samaritan. And with all the tension and the conflict between the two, it's, it's not common for this conversation to happen. And two, the, Jesus was a male, and the woman was a woman. So back then, unfortunately, not only did they live in a racist somewhat society, they also lived in a masochistic society where males somehow they understood as being more valuable or worthy than females. Okay, So all these things um, uh, kind of made the woman feel a bit weird, probably confused. Why would a Jewish man talk to me out of the blue? And by the way, usually girls don't go out and get water by themselves. Usually they go in groups back at that time to avoid this very thing from happening, (laughs) from a weird guy harassing them, right? So she was alone, um, and, and, and the question is, why did she respond to Jesus at all? Well, I think there's a few reasons, too. One, although it is kind of a weird circumstance, uh, their meeting, the woman here was kind of playing the role of a host, right? This wasn't just some random Samaritan guy. This was a Jewish guy. He was a traveler. He was a guest in her land. And it was customary at that day that the host would provide and be hospitable to the guest, give them whatever they need. That's, that's kind of an expectation. Two, this woman probably viewed herself as, quote-unquote, less than Jesus because of all the cultural things at the time. Okay, so Jews at the day fancy themselves as better than Samaritans, and males, unfortunately, fancy themselves above women, better than women. She probably felt a bit of pressure to oblige to this Jewish male who is in every cultural way, quote-unquote, ranked higher than her. So though reluctantly, the Samaritan woman engages with Jesus. Verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And at this point, as if the conversation wasn't weird enough, Jesus made it weirder. All of a sudden, Jesus just turns the table around and starts offering this woman water. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now at the end, we're going to see why this conversation maneuver matters. But for now, I just want to point out how gracious Jesus, our Lord, is. He's trying to communicate with this woman. This is not the cultural norm. The Jewish readers at the time was probably appalled 
by the fact that Jesus would even continue in this conversation. He breaks all the cultural norms. He's saying, I don't care. I want to engage with you. I know that in this land and culture, your ethnicity makes you less valuable than me. I know that in this land and culture, your gender makes you less valuable than me. That is not right. And I will not submit to that. I don't care what it says. I want to engage with you. I value you. So the woman now, a bit thrown aback, a bit more confused, asking, first of all, it's weird that we're talking at all. Second of all, I'm the host here. You're the traveler. I'm the one who's supposed to offer you water. Why are you offering me water? And third, what are you going to use to get water anyways? Verse 11 and 12 says, thinking that Jesus was offering her physical water. Jesus responds in verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water, referring to the physical water the woman thought Jesus was offering her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This conversation just gets weirder and weirder to the woman, I'm sure. What is Jesus trying to say? Well, it'll make sense at the end, but at this point, he's wanting to share the gospel to the Samaritan woman. He's wanting to reveal to her of a water much more important than what you're trying to get now, of a thirst much more deep than what you might be feeling right now. It's a water mentioned all throughout the Old Testament, by the way, that will clean God's people from sin. Isaiah 12, verse 2 to 3. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. What water is this? Zechariah 13, 1. One more. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Jerusalem referring to all of God's people, not just the biological uh, uh, Jerusalem. But the woman didn't get this. In verse 15, she's still responding as if Jesus was talking about physical water. And Jesus perseveres and carries on the dialogue. He really, 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 really wants her to understand what this water is that he's offering her. He pursues her relentlessly beyond cultural bounds and cultural comforts. And stick with me now because the words of Christ is important not only to the Samaritan woman, but to us today. But in order for her to truly grasp what Jesus is meaning by this living water, and for us to truly grasp what Jesus wants to say to us about this living water, we see Jesus doing something here that makes the conversation even a step more uncomfortable. Jesus wants to reveal, first and foremost, the thirst this water can quench. That's the only way this woman can know what it is this water is about. And this is the thirst that the woman, and maybe some of us here, may have suppressed. Point number two, the wounds that he uses. Let's read verse 16. Jesus wanted to explain to this woman, I'm not meaning physical water. There's another water. There's another thirst I want to talk about. And, and he starts that by saying what he did in verse 16. Go, call your husband and come here. The woman responds very quickly in verse 17. I have no husband. Now, I don't want to over-psychoanalyze the Samaritan woman here, but every commentary I consulted agrees that based on the linguistics, 
the, and, and the way dialogues are usually carried out back then, the woman clearly wants to just cut short this conversation. Uh, bring me your husband. I, I have no husband. Why? Well, because she's ashamed of this topic for some reason. Jesus continues to press on, and he, he's relentless. He brings this shame, this thirst, up to the surface even more so that she can understand what water it is he's offering. And he's not doing this to disgrace her. Uh, well, let's talk about what Jesus said. Jesus said to her, I have no husband. Okay, Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five, five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Okay, now we have more data about this woman. Apparently, the Samaritan woman has had five divorces. And she's currently living with the man who isn't her husband. Now, I want to be careful. Usually when we read this, we think that it's her fault all this has happened. Uh, the blame lies in the Samaritan woman. She's the one who can't keep a marriage together. And her shame, Jesus is trying to reveal, is from her not being able to remain faithful to men. But again, you must realize divorces back then is not like how it is today. Today, if there's a married couple and they want to get divorced, they each go to lawyers, and these lawyers would handle the divorce, and they'd get divorced. It's not like that back then. Remember, this was a very masochistic culture where males had all the power. And divorces can't really happen unless the husband is the one who initiates it, unless the husband is the one who finds reason for divorce. And husbands back then, unfortunately, can divorce their wives for any small little thing they find. Not too different from some cultures still today. So the shame that's weighing down this woman is most likely not caused by what she has done, but it's caused by what has been done to her. A commentary affirms that she's a victim, I quote, a victim of an abusive system where husbands can freely divorce their wives, leaving a woman used and helpless so that even her most recent man will not marry her. She's been used and abused over and over and over and manipulated and abandoned to a point where people in that culture viewed her as worthless. And now, due to the broken system of her land and her culture, her best hope for love is with a man who wants to be with her but doesn't really want to commit to her. That's, that's her best hope, she thinks. And she's ashamed of this. She wants to cover this. I, I have no husband. Let's, let's stop there, Jesus. Don't pry any further. Lest you see just how low I really am. Now, again, I want to be careful. I'm not saying that we're broken and sinful just because of the things that's been done to us. Scripture is clear. Our hearts don't need to be hurt in order to become sinful. It's sinful because it's sinful. What I am saying is a sense of shame and worthlessness we may have can come not only from the things we've done, but could also come from the things that's been done to us. And sometimes it's harder to face the shame that's been caused by the things that's been done to us rather than facing the type of shame that's caused by what we do sometimes. Because it not only reminds us of the shame but also of just how power, powerless we may feel while we were in that situation. So in her shame, the woman wanted to stop this interaction, 
well, first of all, because it's uncomfortable that we're talking about this, but second of all, I'm sure because now the gap between this Jewish male and her widened even more, right? By the rules of her land and culture, uh, uh, she thinks, I'm nothing in comparison to this man. I'm not only a Samaritan, I'm also a woman, but I have been found unworthy by not one, not two, not three, but five males. And the one I'm with now doesn't even want to commit to me, but I'll take it because that's the best I can get. And she just, just this is a very hard spot for her to be in. And by the way, every culture, every culture has these measuring sticks that they use, don't they? To kind of measure where someone is at in the cultural hierarchy. Uh, my wife loves reading a variety of literature, uh, literature genres, and currently she's reading a book that maybe can be classified as a satire. A satire is like a, a sarcastic, ironic comedy, uh, but it's also a commentary to the culture happens to be in Southeast Asia, uh, in the Asian culture as a whole. Uh, in this book, there's a really wealthy lady and the lady walks around, and, and she, she's, just, she's rich. She's lived on the highest shelf her whole life, okay? Um, and she walks around, and, and when she sees another Asian, she immediately has these calculations in her head of how to rank them, how to, how to give points to them, right, based on our cultural point system. I'm, 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 this is a quote from the book, okay? I'm not making this up. <laughs> Question number one, she asks herself, what kind of Asian are they? Ranked by skin color. <laughs> uh, some skin colors get more points. Some skin colors get less points, right? And accordingly, give and take away points based on their skin color. Question number two. Does this person's family happen to own some fabulous hotel, airline, spa resort, luxury brand, restaurant, bar, nightclub that I could potentially benefit from? Hold on. Add 25 points if family owns a private island Add 500 points for a major movie studio. That's a lot of points. Question number three. There's like 15 of these. I'm just going to read three. Question number three. How attractive and stylish is this person in relation to me? For ladies, face, skin, whiteness, jewelry, watch, handbag, shoes, outfit, hairstyle, makeup. Subtract 50 points if gosh brands are visible. I don't know what gosh is, but... Subtract 50 points if gosh bands are visible. For gentlemen, hair density, watch, shoes, <laughs> I don't know what I meant. physique, rest of outfit. This is, this is hilarious, and I hope nobody here is wearing this um, uh, because I don't agree with this. This is just in the book. For, for male, for gentlemen, subtract 100 points if they're wearing a Hermes H buckle belt which only looks good on French or Italian men with deep tans or titles. I'm not trying to, I don't agree with this, okay? Even the author doesn't agree with it. It's supposed to be a sarcastic jab to the way our culture gives point systems. And the list goes on and on and on, and it's so bad. It's so bad, but it's so true, right? The reason, and the reason why people find this funny, I find this funny, is because it's, it's true things that no one would say, but everyone goes by it, honestly. But you know what living in this point system does? It forces people to choose between two options, narcissistic pride or narcissistic shame. 
That's it. If you get points, you'll end up being narcissistically pride. If you don't have points, you'll end up being narcissistically shamed. The focus is still on you, and it's still narcissistic. It's still, it's still on who you are. Living in this point system is tiring. It's unbiblical. It's horrifying. And I know some people might think I'm putting too strong of words here, but I would say this point system is from the pit of hell. It's horrible. It's what's caused the Samaritan woman to see herself as someone at the bottom of the barrel, unworthy for relationships with anyone. She's not good enough. This point system sometimes is potent enough that it has led to suicides. Well, would you stop being so depressed? Get your life together. Work harder. Earn more cultural points. First of all, at best, if you succeed, you'll become narcissistically prideful. And second, it's easy for the Jewish male to say that, right? But try be the Samaritan woman in her day and age. Put yourself in her shoes. Then talk to me about how easy it is. Jesus realized to reveal to her this living water, he, she, he needs to bring these things up to the surface. A thirst that she has suppressed, does not want to talk about, does not want to remember. A feeling worthless, despised. Because to understand this living water, we must see how it deals with our brokenness and shame. How exactly? Well, let's go on to the next part of the dialogue. Point three, the true God that he reveals. Interestingly enough, though the woman was ashamed, she was also intrigued. Jesus showed unusual insight into her personal life. She no longer addresses him as sir like she did in verse 15. Verse 19, she now addresses him as sir and what? Prophet. So she's starting to see there's maybe like a spiritual thing about this guy. He's some sort of spiritual figure, right? Verse 19 to 20. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. The narrative isn't clear why she asked this question, but for whatever reason, Jesus jumped on this opportunity to further explain what this living water is. He's already revealed her shame, reminded her of the thirst she suppressed um, that comes from her land and culture point system, which has depraved her from love and intimacy and care and a sense of worth. Everything that humans were originally made for, to experience from their creator. And it is this point system that helped Jesus move forward. And Jesus is saying, okay, this, you need this living water. This is what you need. Now, he didn't ultimately go to medication. Let me just be clear. Medication is necessary at some points. I believe that. Okay, there's cognitive chemicals that could happen in your brain, and you just need help. I'm not saying it's bad, but Jesus didn't ultimately go to that. He didn't ultimately well, didn't have medication back then, but still, my point is there, there are these other things that we use oftentimes to fill ourselves up. It, that we don't, he didn't ultimately go to positive thinking. There is a place for positive thinking. Don't get me wrong. Uh, uh, cognitive behavior stuff is, is not in itself evil or bad. But there, there's all these strategies we can do to, 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 to continue to forget this feeling of, 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 of thirst that we have. And Jesus did not go to any of that. He said, your solution, ultimately, what you need, Samaritan woman, what you need, church, is to know the one who made you and gave you these longings. What you need is to know the one who can fulfill and satisfy these longings. That's what you primarily, ultimately need. 
and his response was loaded with theological depth. We can't cover everything, but let's try our best to touch at the heart of it. Okay, he explains living water. He explains what the living water is meant to do to heal her from this uh, sin and shame that's been pledging her, pl- plaguing her life. And to do that, you must know who your creator is. So this is where Jesus continues. Verse 21 and 25. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. All right, Uh, the heart of it. One, Jesus is making clear that God is a spirit. You, wanna, you want this living water? You've got to know who God is. One, he's spirit. The woman before asked, you say that people worship, Jews say that people worship here, Samaritans say that people worship here. Uh, 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 what what relationship, spiritual relationship do we have? And he says, you're getting it all wrong. God is not contained physically in a temple, in Jerusalem or in this mountain, which is Mount Gerizim, which is where Samaritans worship at the time. He's not physically contained there. He's a spirit, Okay? You, you, you worship him in spirit. Second, God is a father. So not only is he not a physical entity contained somewhere, he's also a personal entity. You can call him with a personalized name, father. And, and to call God father back then meant a whole, whole lot of things. It wasn't just a name. It assumes that you have the honor of being a part of his family. It assumes that you will have his inheritance as a child of the Father. It assumes that you have his protection, that that you have the worth and value that no money can buy for being his child. Spirit, personal, the Samaritan one probably asking at this point, me? I can be a partaker of this? No way. Don't you know how people see me? The Samaritan might have asked herself. Don't you know the names they call me? They know my past, these people. Don't you know how much they'll laugh at me if they even see me trying? There's no way I can do anything to seek God to a point where I can call him Father. And to this, Jesus says, no, no, no. You got it all wrong. See, that's the next thing about God you must know. Look at the end of verse 23, the the last few words of verse 23. Jesus is saying to the woman, I'm... I'm not saying this relationship will happen because you seek him. Who will seek who? Verse 23 says, the father will seek you. He will look for you. He will pursue you. He will reveal these things and these truths to you. You are way too valuable for him that he would leave the possibility of having a relationship with you up to your own will. No, no. He loves you way too much to leave his relationship with you up to something so fragile and so frail and so weak. He will find his children. He will pursue us. Well, then the next question is, I imagine, how? How will the Father pursue me and give me this living water and and allow me to have the honor of being his child? Um, And how does this seeking deal with my guilt and and my shame? And Jesus says here something, stick with me. It's kind of of confusing in your mind. But in verse 22, Jesus says something that could sound contradicting. He said, this salvation 
that will deal with your sin and your shame and your guilt is from the Jews. It's like, wait, hold on. I just thought you said God wasn't contained in the Jewish temple or the Samaritan temple. He just denied. And, and, he, and neither just does Jesus approve of the Jewish religious leaders. Do you remember the context of this story? Where did he just leave? He just left Judea, right? Jerusalem. Why did he leave? Because the Jewish religious leaders didn't like him. <laughs> because he started preaching the gospel to them, and they didn't like that. So if you don't approve of the Jewish kind of temple worship they're doing back then, and if you don't approve of the things that the spiritual Jewish leaders were saying, what do you mean then salvation is from the Jews? Well, he's not saying that you have to be more Jewish to be saved. No. He's saying the salvation that will cleanse you from your sin, that will make you a child of God, will come to the world. But it will come through the Jews. Salvation will come. This living water will come. Your thirst will be quenched in this unbearable value system that this land has imposed on you of being separated from the Father who longs to have you. You'll be his child. You'll be united with him. But all this will come from Israel, according to the scriptures. What is he talking about? How is this, who is this Jew that will come from Israel and pursue me? You see how ironic this is? He's standing right there. He's talking to the woman right there. But she says, okay, Mr. Prophet, you may be overstepping your boundaries here just a little bit. The woman says in verse 25. I, you're saying all these things about salvation and Old Testament Messiah. I know the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he'll, he'll tell us all these things. Don't, don't overstep. And to this, Jesus said something so bizarre that it made this woman, as we see in our passage next week, so bizarre, it made this woman run into town, abandon her jar, her water jar, and tell everybody in the town what Jesus just said. And why is the statement so powerful? Let, let's see what Jesus said. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am this Jew that will come and pursue the world. I am he. Now, why is this so powerful? It's because the words, I who speak to you am he, in the Greek, the order is a bit different. In the Greek, the order is this. I am he who is speaking to you, not I who speak to you am he, which is how the ESV translates it. Why is that significant? The word I am, it is an unbelievably significant term used throughout the book of John. In the Greek, ego eimi, that's the Greek equivalent to what God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Let's read it. Exodus 3, verses 13 to 14. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Jesus says, I am he. How will the Father pursue you? How will the Father seek you out? I am he. I've come to pursue you that you may know the Father. Jesus is claiming to be the great I Am, to be Yahweh, to be God of the Old Testament. But still, at this point, it's still unclear how does this all relate? How does this living water cleansing from my sin and my shame bring me into a personal relationship with the Father? Father, and how does this all connect with this person standing in front of me claiming to be God? 
connect all the dots, let's continue to see two things. The height of who Jesus is and how low he's willing to go for us. Fourth point, the land that he gives. You still with me? All right, last two points. What Jesus said to the woman is no small thing. I'm the great I am. This, this shatters her worldview. How so? Now she gets it. Now she sees why he offered her water. Why do you think he offered her water? Remember earlier we said, back then it's customary for the host of the land to offer the guest water? This whole time, she assumed she was the host. <laughs> she assumed this was her lands, and Jesus was the guest. But now, Jesus turns the tables, and he reveals to her who he is. She realizes it's been the other way around this whole time. Now it makes sense. I've been talking to the great I am. I've been talking to the owner of these lands. He's the owner. He's not the guest. He should be offering me water to quench a thirst I may have never known I had. This historical landmark, this point of conflict, where it's uncertain who this land belongs to, Jews, other people, Samaritans, Jesus says, it's mine. Along with all the earth is mine. I am the host. I will offer you water. I will give you living water. And apparently, in this land that Jesus owns, he wants to institute a different point system, a different value system. It has a different culture where this woman is viewed differently. She realizes that. She sees, well, I hope she does. I hope she realizes that in this land, my sins have been washed away by this living water. In this land, my disgraceful past does not define me. In this land, I'm not worthless, but I'm spoken to, cared for, pursued by its ruler. In this land, I am not used goods. I'm the child of a king. This is what it means, Christian, to be citizens of heaven. This is what it means to have a land promised for us and be citizens of that land now, although it's not yet fully here, Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, Christians. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Jesus is the King of all, the owner of all. He offers us water. But what's truly powerful about this living water is not only the fact that it comes from a king, and it can pardon me from all my shame, and it can make me a citizen of God's kingdom, and it can make me a child of God, but what's even more bewildering, even more humbling, even more mind-blowing is that it's not only what this living water can do or where this living water is from, but how it was given to us. Last point. Okay, how this living water is given to us. Please stick with me. If you don't get anything else, get this point. Point number five, the hour he embraced. How can we have this living water? How can God impart to sinners like us such a salvation? Giving us worth and dignity, not dictated by this culture, but found under the status of being the child of God, of being a citizen of heaven, of this land he owns. Because really, we're sinners. We don't deserve this water. God seeks us, yes, but none of us seek him. Romans 3, 10 to 11. I don't know if I put it on there. Yes, I did. None is righteous, it says. 
No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one. And if a just judge must deal with sin, if God is a just God, he cannot let disobedience go. He cannot let our rebellion left undealt with. But none of us seek him. All of us have gone astray. How can then a just God be justified in giving sinners like us, rebels like us, such a gift, such a water? And this is where the words of Jesus, who says, I am the great I am, become even more mind-blowing. Why? Put, put yourself for a second in the shoes of this Samaritan woman. And try to see what she saw. There's, there's this man. He's probably a bit dirty, ragged clothes, sweaty, out of breath. He just traveled a long way from Judea to Samaria. He's sitting on the side of the road, begging for water. He's tired. He's weak. He's thirsty. This is the great I am. This is the Messiah. This is God. This is the owner of these lands. Why would a king ever assume upon himself such sufferings? What could be the reason? But that's not all. Jesus in this conversation hints to the woman that his suffering hasn't ended. This isn't all he's going to do. There's more suffering to come. Verse 21, Jesus says, the hour is coming. And if you read the book of John, every time Jesus talks about the hour, he's always referring to the cross. The hour is coming where he would suffer even more. But why? Why would God come down in flesh, assume a nature of, of flesh and blood and experience tiredness and thirst and ultimately die an inhumane death on a cross where, by the way, he also cried the words, what? I thirst. Why? Well, friends, because this is the only way. The only way God can give us this living water. This is why sinners like us can be dealt graciously by God. Pay for our justice, for the justice required of our sins, that we may be embraced by him as a child. That we can no longer live in a point system that will kill you, either by narcissistic pride or narcissistic shame. This is how Jesus endured divine thirst on the cross so that we can be washed away clean with living water. Jesus entered and died in our world so that we can be citizens in his. The innocent son of God died as a criminal so that we could be embraced as the children of God. This, friends, is the living water Jesus is offering this woman. This is the living water the creator of this world is offering you right now. Now, we're out of time, but there's so many things in this passage I kind of skipped over. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say um, um, five implications, very quick implications, of the things in this passage that hopefully now connects to our understanding of this living water. Okay, and then, and then we'll end. One, it tells us about the nature of the church. Friends, as those have been washed by this living water, by what Christ has done on the cross, we are now citizens of God's kingdom. That means the church must never, ever, ever, ever operate according to the world's point system. We must be different. We do not have the leisure to just use that as our default. We must be clear that the way this land measures worth is not how we measure worth. 
the world's point system, have no place in the church. Two, we have to realize that this can happen, this whole throwing away of a point system can only happen if the Father seeks us. It can't happen any other way. If salvation is found by us seeking the Father, then whoever seeks the Father more gets more points. There's your point system again. You can't do it. No one seeks the Father. Your salvation is a result of God's gracious pursuit of you. Any aspect of our salvation that isn't accredited to his gracious pursuit is an aspect open for the point system. Let me repeat that. Any little aspect of our salvation that isn't accredited to his gracious pursuit is an aspect open for the point system. That is not the system the church runs on. Third, worship is to be done to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Spirit. This living water Jesus offers can't be separated from the Trinitarian God revealed in this passage. We've seen of the Father who seeks. We've seen of the Son who claims to be the great I Am, who pursues you and died for you, the only one through which we can worship, the true temple, by the way, and the spirit whom we worship through, uh, through as we've seen, uh, spirit and in truth. Okay, which is the fourth thing. Spirit and truth cannot be separated. Jesus twice said, you must worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 23 and 24 is clear about that. We cannot separate spiritual worship from doctrinal truth. Why? Uh, Truth about what? About everything Jesus talked about. Truth about the reality of Jesus' divine nature, the reality of sin, the reality of this Trinitarian God, the reality of the Father seeking us and us doing nothing in our salvation. All these things, how the Old Testament fulfills the New, how the New Testament fulfills the, all these things, we must worship in these truths. High emotions at church, if not clearly driven by and anchored in explicitly, these truths may not necessarily constitute as biblical worship. Let me say why. Passionate we may be, yes, but passionate unto whom? Who are we passionate about? What are we passionate about? Who are we passionate to? May every inch of our passion be driven by and directed to the true Trinitarian God of the scriptures, the only God who deserves it. Fifth and lastly, you are never too dirty to receive this living water, nor are you ever too clean to need it. You're never too dirty to receive this living water, nor are you ever too clean to receive it. You can't get much more unworthy than this Jewish woman, than this Samaritan woman in the Jewish eye. It's the lowest of the low. Yes, this is for you. And remember the context. Jesus just left a bunch of people in Jerusalem, a bunch of religious leaders in Jerusalem that thought they were too clean for it. They thought they were too good for it. They suppressed this thirst by religious things. Said, I'm I'm clean. I don't need to be cleansed from living water. He left them. You're never too dirty to receive it. You're never too clean to need it. Friends, I pray that you may partake of of this living water offered by the creator of this universe, by our creator to his creatures, to his people, through his cross. And whether you may be hearing it for the first time today or you're being reminded of it for the hundredth time today, 
I pray you will embrace it as it washes away our sin and shame, clarifies our sight unto the true triune God, and clears the fog that hides the land we are citizens of and the culture we are meant to represent. Pray with me. Lord, it's unbelievably hard to break out of the point system that this culture has imposed upon us, that we have imposed upon ourselves and upon other people. We repent and we are sorrowed by our measuring of others based on these things that are hurtful, that are painful, that degrades creatures that are made in your image. And Lord, I beg you that you would pull your church away from it and make us realize we are a bunch of sinners who have been pursued and sought out by the Father. And there's nothing in us that can claim any points because we were dead in our transgressions, but your mercy saved us through Christ alone. And Lord, now that we are a group a people saved by you, we can have a foresight, of, uh, we can know of who our God is, our triune God, of a Father who seeks, of God the Son who died, of God the Spirit who made this truth effectual in our hearts, in whom we worship through. Also of the word that you have given us, the truths in which we're meant to worship in, and Father of a culture we're meant to represent, and of a land we are promised, and of a Father we now have. Oh, my Lord, this is truths too great for sinners like me to partake. But when we feel that, let us be reminded of just how much more greater is the cross in which the king died for me. And now, Lord, you dictate my life. You own who I am, for I am a child of the one who loved me and pursued me and died for me, my creator and my redeemer. In your son's name we pray. Amen.